I knew I was a leader way back in the fourth grade when I gave James a test after showing him how to use the Dewey Decimal System. He was in the first grade. Even at the age of 10, I instinctively understood the importance of performance measures. James told his mom about me and reported me to the principal the next day, and I've never gotten over that. Forty years later, I'm still trying to figure out how to stretch employees, not get in trouble, determine the perfect performance measure, and how to manage bossy bosses. I wanted to do this podcast to place the human side of leadership right in the middle of the room. I am Dr. Don Emmerich, and this is Leadership Uncensored. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to episode three, the only one. You are about to listen to a very insightful, thoughtful, provocative, uncensored perspective of two accomplished black leaders, one from Portland, Oregon, and one from San Antonio, Texas. My guest, Rachel Banks and DeMonte Alexander, you know, came to the table and they delivered. When I put the list of topics together for my new podcast, I had an asterisk next to this. I knew that it was a topic that we needed to talk about, and I needed the right people to talk about it. If after this podcast, you're not feeling a sense of self-reflection and an inventory of your own behavior and an inspection of your workplace, then I may not be the podcast for you. You'll see throughout this podcast where both Rachel and DeMonte will say, Yes, I echo what she said, or I echo what he says. That is so fascinating to me that shows you the systemic racism that is occurring across our country when you can have two people, two strangers, whose geographic region is completely different, but yet they have similar experiences. Rachel explains how she was nurtured in her community in Portland, where she grew up, a black community was very supportive, very empowering. Black is beautiful. On the other hand, DeMonte grew up in poverty and it was about survival, but he had the military and the military, everything was based on rank. Once Rachel left her community and went off to college and once DeMonte left the military and moved to San Antonio, that's where things changed, where they realized that they were not prepared for being the only one in their workplace. I really hope that you enjoy this. I think that you will leave feeling reflective and hopefully inspired. I know I did. Thank you. Hope you enjoy. Many black leaders find themselves being the only one in the C-suite on boards and meetings at conferences at strategic retreats. Black leaders often feel hooray for me, but also why just me all at the same time. There is an unconscious bias that exists in leadership and business culture, whether people want to admit it or not. Companies can have all the diversity and inclusion trainings they want, but that doesn't change the fact that Black women and men are continually overlooked, isolated, discriminated against, or even tokenized. Today's episode, Leadership Uncensored, we explore what it's like to simultaneously be invisible and hyper-visible at work. Hello, Rachel and DeMonte. How are both of you? Hello, doing well. Thanks. How about you? Excellent. Hey, Don, I'm great. Thank you. Thank you for asking us to join you. You are very welcome. You know, this is just such a topic that I feel like um, needs to be discussed more. You know, we have so many conversations, rich conversations about anti-racism and equity and inclusion, but this just seems to be a topic that seems to be overlooked. And I just really appreciate you all being willing to come in on this podcast and talk about it. I think, again, having this space to talk about this topic. Hopefully some of the listeners who are tuning in will be able to go, you know what, that's exactly how I felt. And that's how I feel. And I just wasn't sure if I should be feeling this way, or if I was just losing my mind, or if I was overanalyzing or overthinking. And so I just really, again, appreciate you coming on and speaking truth to power on this topic. So thank you. Thank you. 
So let me do a little bit of introduction to these two wonderful guests that I have here today. Rachel Banks is the Public Health Director for Multnomah County Health Department in Portland, Oregon. As the director of the largest local public health division in the state of Oregon, Rachel leads over 300 employees and oversees strategies to protect, assure, and promote the health of over 800,000 people across six cities, including Portland. Currently, she is guiding the unprecedented public health response to COVID-19, during which she has prioritized Black, Indigenous, and people of color. Rachel leads inclusively with race towards the elimination of health inequities. She received her bachelor's degree in psychology from Gonzaga University and her master's of public administration from Portland State University. She is a proud mother, dedicated wife, and a faithful children's church teacher. I would also just add that she is a wonderful friend. So Rachel, thank you again for coming on. My pleasure. DeMonte Alexander provides leadership for internal external communications for Fax public opinion research. This encompasses public relations, marketing, events, digital social media, and collateral development. DeMonte joined Fairfax in November of 2009 as its first director of communications. He has over 15 years of experience in communication and community outreach. DeMonte has honorably served 10 years in the U.S. Army and received awards for his valor and efforts in combat in Baghdad, Iraq, during Operation Iraqi Freedom II. Thank you for your service. Before joining Barifax's team, DeMonte served as the communications director and deputy chief of staff at San Antonio City Hall and a campaign manager for county judge in Texas State House races. One of his greatest accomplishments, which is extremely impressive, um, was that the successful passage of the 850 million city bond referendums in 2017. Rachel and DeMonte, thank you so much again for being a part of this show. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. So, DeMonte, let's start with your story. Tell the listeners a little bit about you. Uh, what's been your leadership journey? What's your philosophy? You know, what kind of lessons? Tell us a little bit about this experience about being the only one. Well, thank you again for the opportunity. And I think I'll have to start with, uh, I, have, I think I have such a long, so many things have influenced my, um, my career along the way. Um, I think I'll start with um, when I met my wife, um, I was really trying to discover who I was as a person. And I was working, working those jobs where you, you worked, you work for a check, you know, you look at the clock, look for five o'clock and you go home. And I just felt uneasy about that experience every day. And I, I talked to my fiance, well, wife now, fiance at that time and said, Hey, I'm really feeling this way. And she says, well, go figure it out. And so she um, gave she supported me for two years just to go out and figure out what I wanted to do and what, what this life means to me. And, and that ended up being dance. I taught Latin dance for a while. Um, I traveled the country teaching and learning and hosting dance events. And I also learned I became a PGA professional. So um, those are two things that I really enjoyed was playing golf and dancing. And I did that for quite a, quite a while, became very good at both of them. That's not in your, that's not in your uh, bio. It is. <laughs> that's amazing. But I needed to, I needed to tell that story to get to where I'm at today. And, and, you know, just time going by, I had a daughter and you just start to rethink what life really means to you uh, once you're responsible for another human being. And I just looked at everything that I was doing and I felt like, man, you know, I, I started seeing some friends having mentors and so I, I called out, I called to a couple of friends of mine at the time and I said, hey, would you be interested in being a mentor of mine? I'm really looking for a direction. And one of those people um, um, I reached out to, we had breakfast every morning um, at a local restaurant and this individual asked me, um, what do you see yourself in five years? And no one had ever asked me that question before. And so um, I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, I know what you're doing now, but what do you want to, where do you want to go in five years? And, and basically the long story short, this individual just said, based off of what I know about you, I think you would be great at, you know, at city hall, you'll be great at the chambers of commerce with, with your skill sets and, you know, marketing and everything you were doing in dance. You know, at that time, I didn't even know, I didn't know what communication was, but I was doing it through dance and through golf because I was teaching and I was, building curriculums and those types of things, but I didn't know it was called communications. So anyway, I get to um, opportunity to work at City Hall. 
and this really wasn't a time where I really felt like I was the only one. Although, well, let me let me say that there's only a few black people that were at City Hall at that time, so that that does apply. But the office I was working out of, we it was it was in a historically black community, so it didn't the work we were doing. I didn't really feel like it was like a like a I was a token, if you will. Um, I just felt like I was brand new, learning something for a community that did look like me in terms of his historical relevance. I think the part where I really started to feel um, um, that you know tokenized was when because um, you have to think I was in the military for ten years before I got to San Antonio. Your, your your brothers and sisters are out there no matter what, no matter what color, what background, what they believe. So you're trained, you know, for a decade of my life, I was trained to not not worry about those things or, or be influenced by those things. But it really came prevalent to me when I moved to San Antonio, how how different it was uh, trying to navigate politically, trying to, you know, seek different jobs outside of dance and golf. It's really tough. And um, and I think that's where I really first experienced the, the term what to- tokenism is and those types of things. Thank you for that. Um, I've learned a lot about you. Rachel, tell us your story. Yeah, well, so part of my story, I I think, really crystallized into my leadership journey. So I was born and raised in in, um, Portland and grew up in a historically Black neighborhood, was well-supported, went to Black schools um, where people always believed in me and I got the messages that you're smart and you will be successful and your ancestors have poured into you and you're going to you know, get this education and then you're going to pour back into your community. And that all was, was beautiful. And at the same time, there was this message of disinvestment and growing up in a neighborhood that people didn't want to live in. You knew that, you know, my brother, other people didn't want to come and, and play, uh, play them in baseball because they were too scared about the, the neighborhood and our schools were disinvested in and even, you know, we were in this district, but some schools had this and, and other schools didn't. Like DeMonte, uh, dance is a huge part of my story. So I grew up uh, dancing and uh, the, the school that I, high school that I went to, Jefferson had a, a dance program and a performance dance program called the Jefferson Dancers, which, um, you know, really was a huge part of my life growing up and, and also helped me to see systemic racism as you know, that, that was this, this, um, this program that was, you know, nationally renowned at that time. And although I had this experience of folks not wanting to come to the neighborhood, there was a bunch of highly trained white dancers that would come, some of them driving hours and hours from, you know, rural parts of Oregon to come at this dance program. And, and so having that experience, um, but feeling very fulfilled and then going to Gonzaga and uh, which was this, you know, is, is a is a private Jesuit university, great education. Um, but that that was the beginning of feeling tokenized and invisible and hyper visible at the same time, uh, as you talked about in the in the intro, Don. And and for one, I just I never had that experience of folks not thinking I was smart, and I had never had the experience of people being scared of me, literally, like you know, kind of moving when you walk through the halls. Um, and so, and I could see this just kind of the systemic investment and in education and what that really looked like when you have uh, investment in a community and, and what that did. So that's really always shaped, I think, my leadership journey of, of the, that juxtaposition that on one hand, growing up in a thriving, brilliant community that was disinvested in, um, but believed in people and nurtured, you know, amazing people and, and going from there to this place where I was supposed to be nurtured and get this great education that was going to set me up for this foundation. And uh, I was so lucky to be there, but being, you know, the only one and, um, and having that experience of, of being tokenized. And it really just set forward for me, this path of working towards um, systemic justice. And I think, you know, I didn't know it at that time, but it's fitting, I think, to work uh, now that I work in, in government and local government that makes a lot of the decisions that shapes people's experience uh, like mine growing up in, in, in a black community that's now since been gentrified. And, you know, of course, folks want to live here and, and the people that I grew up with, um, many of them are unable to. So that's that's really how I guess I would describe my story in terms of leadership philosophy. Um, I try to really be a strengths based builder type of person. And, and while there's a ton of things that, you know, need fixing, if I can 
you know, skirt, skirt that towards getting resources to build something that's um, community-based, then that's the approach I'll try to take. Wow. That's um, excellent. Thank you for sharing that, um, both of your stories there. I'm curious, I have a lot of questions. Um, I've been taking a lot of notes here and I have a lot of questions. The the thing that's interesting that you said, DeMonte, in terms of your experience in the, in the military, how, how were you able to translate that culture into the realities of, of, of work? Where just as like what Rachel was just describing is, you know, having, have, having been um, brought up in this um, very positive, strength-based Black experience empowerment, but then in the, the realities of the world, you know, of going to Gonzaga, it, you know, you sort of peeled back that the the reality of things. So, from your experience in the military, how did you transition, and what what were the aha moments where you realized, oh boy, this is different? So that's a very good question, and I think um, unlike um, uh, Rachel, um, you know, I, I, I my background didn't really have that sense of empowerment. Uh, we we had a my background is just what I what I remember is poverty. I'm the oldest of ten kids from a single mother, so it was just survival for us. Um, the and the transition from the military wasn't so much about a a race related thing; it was a leadership related thing. So I was used to a different style of leadership. I was used to direction. I was used to purpose. I was used to structure. I was used to everybody being treated equally, regardless of your rank. Everybody had the same expectations. And so when I left the military, the stark difference for me is from the lack of leadership that we have just in in, in, uh, in, in society outside of the military. I had a hard time working regular jobs because there was a void in leadership. And I'm one of those people, if I sense a void, I kind of have a takeover mentality with that, right? And so... Um, I was always in trouble. I was always fighting against my managers and against my boss. And my wife was like, I think it's you. You know, she's like, at some point, it's you. Like, you you know, you have a, you you can't keep a job. You won't be happy until you start your own business. And uh, and that was the stark difference for me. Uh, I think I didn't really start to experience, again, the race, the, the difference in races until I got to San Antonio, to be honest with you. Um, I, I brought that military mentality to the community where I felt like, oh, I can work in any space, you know, as long as you have good intentions and you're good people, everybody will accept you just because of the work that you provide. But what I really realized is how segregated uh, mentally and also culturally San Antonio is. Um, being a, one of the, you know, being black, being black men in general in some of these spaces, there's not a lot of us. And so when you find yourself in some of these rooms, like to your point, yay, but wait a minute, where is, right. <laughs> where, where's everybody right. else that looks like me? You have to feel like, um, do they listen to you, right? Do, uh, does your opinions matter? Is there, is, is the workforce uh, um, diverse? And um, I think what I'll sum it up is, you know, are you able to be your authentic self mm-hmm. at work? Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's, I think that's important. And I think, uh, and I also think that diversity and inclusion are two separate things. And a lot of times that we're always diversity, inclusion, diversity, inclusion, we're combining them like they're both, but diversity is a numbers game. Like, you know, your, 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 your institutions and your offices and your government should be a reflection of the population. Right. Right. And then, but the inclusion, but that doesn't mean that they're in leadership (laughs) positions. That doesn't, that doesn't mean that, that you're being inclusive with, you know, the decision-making. And so you got to have a, you have, you have to cultivate inclusion. And, and I think that's um, where the, the conversation needs to be had today locally. That was a great response. What you mentioned a couple times in the beginning of your introduction, your story, and just now in this prompt, it wasn't until you got to San Antonio. What exactly was that? What, what was one of your very first moments where you went, okay, this is different. That is a great question, Don. And I'm gonna I'm gonna tell this story the best way I can without, you know, but anyway, so there I I um got an opportunity to work with uh, a chamber of commerce and I was on the membership committee. 
as on the membership committee, you know, we just work to bring in members to highlight the chambers. And in I was bringing in more members as a as a volunteer than the actual person being paid to do that. And a, a, a position opened up, a job position opened up to for that position. And I was encouraged to apply uh, by somebody on the committee because they knew the work. Um, so I was so excited that I got to apply for, for this job. And I went home and I spent all weekend putting together a 30, 60, 90 day plan of how what I would do in the 30 days, 60 days, and where, where would we go and then repeat that. And I gave, it was almost like I interviewed. <laughs> and so when I walked into the interview room, it was like a boardroom full of, every, you know, all the executives were there. I'm like, oh, wow, these are, these are the big guys here. Were, so were, you, were you the asked, only one? I was the only one. I was the only one. And uh, I was on, I was the only black man in the room. Let's yeah. just say that. Um, and so I gave a presentation. I asked for the projector so I could get the projector. I had a whole present. It looked like they were just shocked with that. I would go into that length. It's almost like I was interviewing them. And so I, basically I, I, I did a great presentation in my opinion. Uh, and I left and a few, few weeks later, a few weeks went by and someone else ended up getting the job. And, uh, and, all, and what, what was told to me is that you had the best presentation by a long shot. No one went above and beyond the way you did to kind of talk about where we currently are and all the measures you would take to make the membership grow and be better. Um, however, a favor was given to someone who was a who didn't look like me. And so therefore I got pushed oh. out. I, I was, therefore I didn't get the job. And so that's when that was the moment when I really realized like, oh shit, this mm -hmm. game is different. Mm -hmm. And that's what really pushed me to go, which which forced me to go, okay, well, if if I'm not gonna be embraced as as a black man in other places, let me go, let me go support my own people. And so that's where it happened to me uh, in terms of a shift is when I really realized that, you know, there, there's nobody coming to save us. Like you got it, everybody's in it for themselves. And hopefully you can go go to your people and hopefully you can support your people. That's where a community that you should be embraced, that you guys can seek change together because this community is not going to be here mm -hmm. for you. And that's when I realized that. Well, that's a, whew, that's an interesting story. Um, and I really truly appreciate you being uncensored. That's what this podcast is about. Yeah. Rachel, you know, one of the things you said in your introduction is that you had such a strong sense of community in the very beginning as you were growing up. So I want to ask you the same question. Can you explain to me, can you share a situation where it, you it realized that, that it was clear to you that things were different? You know, listening to Demonte speak and, and that that I story of you had the best presentation, but I it just it hit me in my gut because there's there's a number of times where I've experienced that, and it, there's a number of times where I've experienced it growing up and and even now, um, and, and interviewing for jobs. And I think there's this sense I mean, growing up, and I talked about dance and where. Um, you know, in the black community and many communities, dance is, is you, you know, it's just such a core part of, of our culture and our being and that the difference between technique and performance has always been very profound. That difference of what does it look like in a rehearsal studio? How, you know, how perfect is your technique? And that is something that uh, white folks had. That's a privilege game. It's it's a repetition game. It's 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 a money game, right? Do you have have you had the opportunity to have the private lessons and the you know ballet since you were three and in this in this game in which um, ballet becomes the core for for technique, but then you get us on a stage, and it'd be like, wow, you guys can perform. You had the best performance. You put the most into it. You left the most on the stage. But, you know, the black dancers were either, you know, male dancers were tokenized or the black female dancers were somewhere in the back and then and then lauded later. So, I mean, I think there's there's that experience. But I mean, kind of just to to really relate to DeMonte's experience of an interview, um, being asked to apply for a job, uh, I've, I've, I've had that. And, and Don, when you talked about being overlooked, you know, it feels like being overlooked so many times that I've, I've tried to turn it into a leading edge. 
like, oh, okay, well, they're going to overlook me. So I'll, I'll sneak into the game or maybe you have less haters that way or, or, you know, then you can really perform, but at its core, you know, there, there's that injustice there. Um, but having that experience of, of being asked to apply for a job, um, applying for it, doing multiple rounds of interviews, including a presentation and in giving this presentation that was really based on life story that took the, the data, which was around, you know, what, what's the mix of corrections, health and social determinants and poverty and all of these things and told it from this, you know, had the PowerPoint out, um, had the, the, uh, the story out, had literally had people in, in tears in the room and not getting the job. Uh, and being told, wow, you really have the best story. We need to do a write-up and put it on our webpage about your story. And it's like, wow. And the thing that, that's that's a, a trip about being in a place like Portland, people pride themselves on being so inclusive, so, um, you know, so far advanced in equity and justice. And when it it's covert. And so then there's a lot of the, the, the covert and we have to bring in, you know, even when, when I'm not the only one, it's like, but, but you kind of, kind of get a, a better, shinier Negro. Right. And it's, it's, it has this different edge, which is the same thing of, of, you know, it's not, it's not just a numbers game, but there's still this tokenism game. So that's what really came to mind at, at listening to DeMonte and hearing your question, Don. You felt like you were a quota in that interview. You know, I felt like, <clears throat> I wouldn't say a quota, um, I, I will say that I feel like I've been in multiple interviews where, well, actually, I guess I would say a quota. I, I feel like I've been in multiple interviews where they, where it seemed like I would do less well than I did. And then I watched people really struggle with what to do with that. And like I was put there to, to be someone maybe in the top two to really get to the top one who, you know, they wanted first place. Maybe was, you know, yeah, or had better charisma or whatever, whatever you want to call her. They wanted the first place that they had recruited, what have you, would, you know, shine and, and be a star. And this kind of, you know, this hometown girl who's, who's been here, like she'll do all right. Um, and then watching people really struggle with, oh, we didn't think that was going to happen um, or that surprise. Or then people coming back to me and saying, ah, I just want to tell you, I think, I think your presentation was better in DeMonte's words or, you know, um, so yeah. Yeah. DeMonte, you have anything to respond to that? Is, can you relate to any of that? Yeah. I, I think in terms of the dance community, yes, there's, there's, I, I will touch on this just a minute. So, you know, when I uh, learned, I was in the Latin dance industry and every time that i would show up to a venue or a club they would automatically assume that i'm dominican or hispanic you can't be black and dancing that well like how do, where did you learn this from <laughs> and so uh and that was that was that was weird and then once i learned more about dance history i'm learning that this is our dance latin dance and the rhythms and the and the and the culture and the religion behind dance comes from africa and that even drew me more closer to uh, Latin dance. And what I what I get a lot, especially in the in the community, is you know it's like this. I'm an outsider because I'm I'm not really Latin or I'm black, but essentially this this is our stuff too. And so, uh, but I I definitely echo her her comments and her her feelings around that. I definitely have to agree. So I want to get a sense of just how vast this own, you know, being the only one really is in your lives. Have you ever been to a party where you're the only black person in the party? Yes. Yes. Have you ever been the only person at a strategic retreat? Yes. Yes. Do either of you sit on boards of directors? Yep. I do. Are, are you the only black person on the board? At a certain time I was. When I got on, I was, then there's oh, over the past three years has been one more addition. <laughs> you know, your examples that you're, that the two of you are, are sharing, I, I don't think is unlike many people in, um, in our country. I'm, I'm curious though, you know, I want to connect to this emotionally. And this is the piece that we don't see in textbooks, right? This is not the stuff that you read in blogs. I want to hear, how did this make you feel? 
That's the human side of this. Put it right in the room through this journey and through these experiences that you just out outlined um, for us. Tell me how this made you feel as a leader, as a practitioner, as a human. Tell me more about that. Well, the feeling of, of being overlooked and devalued, right, is is extremely hard. And, but the thing that the moment where it, it got to me, where I realized how much I was stuffing those feelings, um, you know, as you mentioned, I work and, and we're in a pandemic and we've you know, been working seven days a week for months. And I had one of my black colleagues say, you know, wow, you're killing it out here. You are you are you're stepping up. Your leadership is amazing. This is your time. And she said, but if I watched the news, I wouldn't even know you existed. Every time I'm in one of these board meetings or in one of these meetings, I hear people saying, Rachel, this, Rachel, that we got to call her. And, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, wow, does this woman get a break? But if I see who we are putting as an organization out there out front to be the expert, I wouldn't even know you existed. And I started to do the, the, the tap dancing of, well, you know, it's okay. And I like to be in the background. It's fine. And all this stuff. And she just said to me, no, your daughter deserves when she looks back at history to know what you have done and you are you you are not going to internalize this racism it shook me up i'm even you know quivering talking about it now because i thought about the sacrifices that my family was making for me to do that and how placid or complicit i had been in this idea of being overlooked or this idea of it's fine for you to put in the labor it's fine for you to be to you to go back to a you know slave metaphor, it's it's fine for you to be out here on this plantation, but you can't be the brains of the operation, not publicly. And you're not going to be the person who's out here talking about it. Watching just, you know, how many people in a, in a hierarchy, how many black people are skipped over to, to put someone else out front. And so that's, that's what really resonates with me. And just, you know, it, it feels terrible. There's a reason why we're dying early of a variety of different things that don't have to do with education you know, that don't have to do with, with economics, that have to do with the toll of that being overlooked and being devalued concern. And how many times when you're looking around in a room and saying, am I the only one? The adrenaline that comes with that, the the multiple la layers of, of thought in terms of when you say what you say, the, the times where your blood's boiling when you hear something that's blatantly not okay in a room and you look around for a second and say, is anybody else going to call this out? And that, that when your heart is pumping and your blood's rushing and you realize again, nope, it's going to be me again. And that's exactly, you know, I mean, she hit right up, right on the head with a few of those things. But to add to that um, is, you know, when I walk into board meetings, it's distracting because it's the first thing that I think about. Damn, I'm the only one. And it's, it makes you feel vulnerable. Um, there's a sense of vulnerability there because you don't feel like there's anyone to support your voice when you do speak up. You feel uh, uh, lonely when you look around that room. And, and, and you know, I'm not, I'm not a, someone who can diagnose all the, all the byproducts of those different emotions, but I'm sure it takes a toll not only in your workforce, but throughout your, your entire uh, life and with your family, with your friends. And so, um, but that's, but I, you know, I, I echo again, once again, uh, Rachel's comments, because th those are some of the things that you do experience uh, being the only ones in those rooms. Since we're talking about the, the only one, it's, you're always stuck with this. And are, are they, are they, am I here because, you know, they don't have any black people on their board and they want to meet that quota right. or do they really value right. what I bring to the table? You know, and that's a, that's an ongoing, that's an ongoing struggle. It's like a, it's like a relationship. Should I trust her? Should I, should, should he trust you? It's like a, it's like a thing. And like, I don't, it's like you're, you're with this instant, uh, this daily stride, uh, uh, you know, this daily quest for approval almost. It's like, okay, am I here? Are you here because I, am I here because you value me? Or I'm here because you need my face in this seat, and that's this an ongoing thing. And uh, yeah, but I, but I think the more the more opportunities they give you to be your authentic self, the more opportunities they give you to speak up and invalidate your opinions and support your opinions. I think that's when you start to feel a little bit better about 
you being your reasons for being where you're at. And you know what? That's not anything that I have ever had to personally ever have to worry about. This is the the empathy to this topic of being able to put, you know, folks who have the privilege every single day. I can tell you 100% that I have ever had to walk into an interview, into a board meeting or into any kind of meeting going, oh gosh, am I, am I here because I'm white? <laughs> no, I've never had to do that. Thank you for sharing that vulnerability with, with me and the listeners. Um, you've prompted me to think about something in a little bit more of a larger macro organizational level. Both of your examples, you know, I think to myself that if you are the only one in the workplace, especially in the C-suite, which, you know, as you go up the food chain, the apex of that triangle gets smaller and smaller. You know, one of the things that I noticed when I was at my previous position here in San Antonio was that my organization did depict the population of San Antonio, but not in the leadership suite, not in the leadership suite. If you took the entire organization and looked at the demographics, it did. But boy, once you got into upper management, it was all white women. We had a few, we had a few people of color, we had a few men, but not a lot. From an organization perspective, there's a connectivity that you need in an organization. So let's talk a little bit about that. And I have a follow-up question to that. Uh, for me, I think it's um, in my current in my current role, absolutely. That I think we were founded on that premise that we wanted to be a reflection of our community uh, when it came to public opinion research. That that was it's in it's in our in the fabric of who we are as an organization and why we were even developed as a as a as, a, as an organization. We wouldn't. You know, we, none of us would do it if it wasn't the way we set it up. As far as other opportunities, um, I think there's been times where, um, and, and it's just a difficult question to, to answer because there's times where you are the only one, you're not supported, but you're, you're in fear of losing your job that you need to feed your family if you do speak up. So it's kind of like you're stuck in this, in this conundrum between right and wrong. And, um, and so it's a little difficult for me to answer that question right now. Yeah. Rachel? You know, I think where it most, mostly plays out, um, I'm fortunate to work in an organization that, you know, in the C-suite, there um, there are a number of leaders of color in, in um, strategic places and um, particularly Black women. And and so that has really made a difference. And, and, you know, in terms of having that support and also pushing you, I mean, to DeMonte's um, earlier statement about having a mentor who says, I can see you somewhere where you can't even see yourself. Um, that's been black people in the organization that, that, that I currently work in who have said, Hey, you know, I, I can see you here in five years. Um, and I believe in you. So I think that really makes a difference where, when I think about, you know, in a state like Oregon and, and in the job that I do being the only one, that's where it really shows up um, and, and not having that support. So it's, it's in, you know, boards or organizations where there's a variety of different um, directors that are coming together and trying to make some statewide impact. And, you know, having that, that emotional support is, is, is few and far between, right? And it takes a lot of, it, it takes a lot of effort. Um, and I think people, you know, for a variety of reasons are okay with withholding their support. Um, you know, and, and cloaking it behind something else. Well, you're urban and I'm rural or, or you know, some other divide that is like, you know, yeah. I, I have to be against you because, because of my, because of my position, because I'm holding up something else. So that's where I've really felt it the most. I think that yeah, lack it, of support. And, it doesn't affect me. So therefore I'm, I'm silent, you know, about it. That's right. I, I smile and I'm, I laugh, not in a humor laugh, Rachel, you know that I laugh because I understand completely what you're saying. And I've been in that room with you. Yeah, um, <laughs> so, you know, I want to tie that back into you know, the reason I asked that question in terms of the connectivity is, um, you know, again, as an organizational design person, one of the things that um, at a previous job that I had in Oregon, our, our county decided that we wanted to engage a large national um, consulting group, and we were doing some employee engagement 
work. And the employee engage the employee engagement work had this um, you know very valid survey that had been used for years. And one of the questions that came up on that survey that's been in that survey for years is, do you have a best friend at work? That question is asking about cult- culture. It's asking about connectivity. And I often wondered, even during that time when we were using that tool, if you are the only one and you don't feel connected because you're the only one, could that tool be very biased, is it really measuring what it needs to measure without taking, you know, this cultural competency approach? I'd love to get your thought on that. When you were experiencing being the only one, did it stop you from having sort of this best friend at work, this connectivity? Yeah, absolutely. Um, You you definitely have a head down mentality. You know, I want to be, I want to do I want to do what what I have to do. I want to be, you know, I don't want to be the one that's called out, that's late, that that dropped the ball. So I'm going to stay in my lane, stay in my circle, do my work and go home and show up the next day. And you know, I think you seek uh, that support from your family and friends outside of work, which but we all know we spend more time at work than we do with our with our with our families. And so I think it's an important uh, topic. Yeah, I would just add when you're the only one, you don't expect to have a best friend at work. It's not even something that that it feels like you're striving for, uh, you know, and so the concept that you would even think that you would have the right or the, you know, the audacity to think that you're going to have a best friend at work, you you kind of, it it furthers a mentality of, um, or it can further a mentality of like, I'm just going to work, you know, and and to DeMonte's point, I'll get the, I'll go home and talk to my best friend or I'll, you know. If I'd add to that, it's like, you know, it's, it's you're on you're on defense 100% of the time you're you're on, you're in defense mode how can i protect my space this small space that i have how can i protect that how can i protect my voice from being uh silenced how can i protect my right to be here uh and how can i protect the opinions that i have and, and the value that i bring to this organization it's it's an ongoing defense of yourself and your and the reason why you're there so you don't really have the space to think about a friend you don't have the space to think about anything else because you're just trying to fight for the right to be there and to earn a, to earn a living. Holy, okay, holy shit. I could, oh my God, I could go on for another hour. That was amazing. So thank you. And I, and I, and I do think that there might be an opportunity to do some follow-up. We need to keep this to a reasonable podcast time. So let's go ahead and move into the hot seat round. So are you ready? Ready. Ready. All right, let me give you an overview. So we have two rounds. The first round is the 30-second hot seat. Certainly, it's not going to be 30 seconds because I've got two of you here today. But I'm going to give you a list of leadership-related prompts. And using less than three words for each prompt, I want you to respond to them as quickly as you can. And Rachel, I'm going to ask you to answer first. And then, Devante, you follow up after her to keep things going. And so let me read off those prompts to you. I'm going to ask you to respond to the good, the bad, the funny, the ugly, the worst, the best, the kick-ass, the lesson, the redemption, the cry, and the embarrassing. So give me, I'll give you an example. If I were to say my prompt was kick-ass, I might say academic health department. Get it? Right. So round two is um, the 10-minute uncensored. I get to choose which one I want because I'm the host. (laughs) I'm going to loop back and ask you to respond to one of those prompts that you gave. So, for example, if you say freedom for the redemption prompt, I'm going to loop back around and ask you to explain what that means and have a little bit of fun with it. Everybody good? Good. All right. The 30-second hot seat starts right now. The good. Public health vindication. Success. The bad. Cheetah girls drama. Oppression. Funny. Garlic bread comas. (laughs) What? (laughs) How I got here. (laughs) The ugly. Politization of life. Continuous oppression of black people. The worst. Anti-black bullshit. 
folks on budget. <laughs> okay, I gotta keep going. I gotta keep going. Uh, the best community power change. My family. The kick ass reach. Young black folks, young black women. The lesson. Radical faith and forgiveness. Damn. Top that, Demonte. If not us, then who? The redemption. Should have chosen you. Equal representation for all. The cry. <laughs> Schedule it in. What was that? Schedule it in. <laughs> I have no more tears. No more tears to give. The embarrassing. Pajamas on Zoom. What? What'd you just say? Pajamas on Zoom. <laughs> uh, mistakes. Excellent. Oh my gosh. I don't know. Where do I go from here? <laughs> so, so Rachel, I had, um, you, you had a lot of responses there, but I want to zero in on the garlic bread coma. What in the world? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, in this, in pandemic time, which, which who knows when we look back and we, you know, it all blends together and, and, you know, you're just, you're working all these hours and I've realized that I'm just eating beige foods and, and a lot of it is comfort foods. Right. And so garlic bread is a beige food. Uh, my husband works for a, a bakery and, and, uh, instead of cooking and receiving for a, a bakery and their bread sales have been going down as everyone's doing like keto or low carb and like the pandemic hit, and for whatever reason, people just said, screw their low carb diets, right? And so his bread sales went up, you know, multiple one week, 50 boxes, the next week it's 500 boxes. The stores, if you remember, were sold out of bread and yeast and flour and all of this stuff. <laughs> so bread becomes this commodity. And, um, you know, we had, had had some food ordered into work and this garlic bread. And so I remember just sitting there with one of my colleagues and we are like stuffing our face with garlic <laughs> bread and coping along with this whole baby food uh, epidemic that, that I've been doing. And so, you know, it became kind of this joke about this garlic bread. Oh, what's for lunch? And if the garlic bread's up there and I'm like leaving, you know, Zoom meetings that I'm presenting on to get the last piece of garlic bread in the cafeteria thinking, is it wrong for me to use my positional authority to commandeer the last pieces of this garlic bread? <laughs> and, you know, then it really came to to a head for me when, uh, I think it was last, this last week, and, and so doing, you know, uh, live stream church, and they said, they said, you know, I didn't pick up my communion cup, but they're like, do you have some bread and, uh, and, and juice at your house? And so I had this crusty stale loaf of garlic bread which the previous days I'm taking honks and just eating this, this garlic with nothing. Like that's my dinner, just garlic bread. And so I was like, oh boy, when I use the garlic bread for my uh, communion and and, uh, and with the grape juice, I just went, all right, this is going to go down. Quick <laughs> 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 response of just this, this garlic bread. <laughs> when will I wake up out of it? I don't know. I haven't woken up yet. But did you enjoy it? That's the oh, main thing. Oh, I enjoyed yeah. it. I enjoyed it. And, and, and <laughs> crusty. Oh, Demonte, mm -hmm. you know, you, uh, I, I gotta go there. Okay. I gotta go there. So Costa budget. Well, did I say that? Let's was, talk about it. Did I say that? Did I say it was ugly? I think you did. <laughs> it, could, it was either, it was either ugly, worse, or, it could have fallen. or less than it could have gone in any of those. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, um, there's people out there, there's there's young activists out there who are really doing this work, um, who are really diving into every line item of this. And so I'm, I'm not the say the the appropriate person to really dive into it, but I, I know enough about it to know that there needs to be like over uh, overhauled, like big change um, when you have 64 percent of your budget going to public safety. Um, you know, at, at least less room for anything else. You know, we're not investing in housing. We're not investing into mental health. We're not investing into these social, these community, these, these community organizations that really are doing the work. And so um, it's just a slap in the face, you know, with, with the movement and everything that's happening and all the work that's happening. It's just, it's ugly. And, and that's why, that's what came to mind. And I think, um, you know, James Baldwin said, you know, how long do we have to wait for your, you know, <laughs> for your change, right? Mm. 
how, how long do we have to wait? You know, he says, you know, my, my, my grandmother waited, my grandfather waited, my aunts, my uncles waited, you know, I'm now 43 years old. How long we, what we must wait for this change. And it's always give, we need time, give us time, give us time. And, and, and through all of this, we're still dying. There's going to be another George Floyd. There's already been another George Floyd. And I made a post yesterday about, you know, budgets, you know, the racism and oppression started with economics in mind. When textiles in the North, it's cotton in the South. And buttons are, uh, budgets are a reflection of the motivations of the implementers. 100%. And, and regardless of how you look at it, you know, regardless of what they're trying to say, oh, we'll get there. You know, we need change now. And that's the ugly truth. And so when you said ugly, that's, that's, that's what came to mind. If not now, when? Right. That's right. Well, gosh, you guys, thank you so much. Um, let's, uh, I know you all have jobs to get back to. So any parting words to the listeners as we, as we wrap this session up? I think I'll start is that number one, thank you um, for being a, a great ally um, to this movement. Um, there's a lot of, you know, people who, you know, will just post on social media. Uh, you know, it's, it takes more than that. Although it's warranted, we, we need we need other folks besides us saying that Black Lives Matter, you know, and it, and we love the fact that you're fighting other white folks on Facebook and, you know, calling out racism and oppression where it lives. But also, you know, I applaud you for creating these spaces to have these conversations, these very important conversations to have. And, and so just thank you, number one, for, for being uh, on our team and on our side uh, and to having these conversations. Thank you. I, I, I don't know what to say at this point. You know, there's been, there's been so much that's been happening. Um, you know, um, and I'll just leave it at that. Just thank you uh, for creating the space to uh, to allow us to speak about these issues. Well, thank you for accepting my invitation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I just really want to echo that. I mean, thank you, Don, for uh, continuing to be courageous and 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 bold and uncaring about you know what might come come to you or what people might think about you for saying the right things. And I think this this um, venue to allow us to be authentic, to bring our, our stories uh, in the ways that, that we told them has just been uh, a real pleasure. I think, you know, the time is now. The, the conditions that, that we're experiencing have, have really led rise to this ripe opportunity. And, and it's, it's just, you know, it, it's, it's humbling to be in a time to watch this civil rights movement and to watch um, people and young people um, and fighting and, it, and it's, it's, you know, Black Lives Matter today and, and uh, tomorrow. And, uh, you know, for the listeners, we keep it up. Time is now. Yeah. And Don, the teacher always catches the second person hitting back in defense, <laughs> by the way. Thank you for sharing that with me. All right. <laughs> thank you. You're welcome. Well, thank you for speaking truth to power and uh, be safe out there. Please wash your hands, social distance yourself and uh, wear your mask. Thank you.